Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guest today is novelist Megan Abbott. She's the award-winning author of 10 novels, including Dare Me and The End of Everything. She has a PhD in literature from New York University. She's the co-creator and executive producer of USA's adaptation of Dare Me and was a staff writer on HBO's David Simon show, The Deuce. On the show, you'll hear us talk about noir, categorization, and structure, and there are many spoilers. They come in at the last 15 minutes or so. You have plenty of warning if you haven't yet read the book. Now, Megan Abbott, author of The Turnout, published by Putnam. So how did you become attracted to crime fiction? Boy, you know, I, I never quite thought it that, of that that way. I kind of, I mean, I always loved um, true crime, even as a kid. Um, but I, I can't say I actually thought that I was writing crime fiction. It just sort of, I guess it was sort of the, the stories I were drawn to, and it worked backwards from there. So I kind of stumbled upon it. Um, and I, I always liked the, um, the way that a crime could really sort of show who people really were, um, to sort of strip them down to their essentials and, uh, um, and you know, the sort of urgency and resilience and all the sort of complications that um, a deadly situation can sort of bring out in people. So I suppose that that was always a sort of lore, but, but I did kind of back my way into it. Do you remember the books you were first attracted to as a kid or a teenager? Yeah, I was a sort of compulsive reader with a, you know, my parents and brother were both big readers too. And I, I read everything, but really big for me early on was the Wizard of Oz books. I was really, um, I still think, I still, just this week, I was thinking about them all over again, um, how fundamental they were for me. Um, but I, you know, I read them all, my brother read them, and we we wrote a letter to Frank Baum. We thought he was still alive. <laughs> and, uh, um um, so those those were big, um, but then this is sort of pre the era of real YA fiction. So I kind of made the jump to adult books at a at a pretty young age. Um, then it was sort of everything that the you know classics, um, but also always thrillers, mysteries, um, yeah, kind of everything. Um, Joyce Carol Oates was an early one. Um, always been sort of promiscuous in my genre choices. Mm. The first book of yours that I read was Queenpin. And um, and then after that was Die a Little because I love noir. And um, I was, I'm just so curious how those books became your first books. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy that uh, a lot of people don't know my earlier books, but they, um, they mean so much to me. I, I was a, also a movie lover going back to as a kid and I always loved the first, the sort of old gangster movies, you know, the Warner Brothers movies with Jimmy Cagney. Sure. And I, yeah, they're, they're just, uh, um, and they really work for kids, you know, because they're in some ways rather simple stories, but they're full of energy and they feel very adult. But, but eventually I found my way to film noir, even though I didn't know it was called that at the time. And, and um 
eventually when I was in graduate school for literature, we started reading a lot of the books that those film noirs were based on. So a lot of the hard-boiled fiction and Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain. And that's, it was from loving, falling in love with those books that I started writing my first novel, Die a Little. And really those first four books were trying to, to write my way into the world of those movies and those books. And Queen Pin won an Edgar, didn't it? Yes, yes, which was a, a huge thrill for me. Um, and really, um, that was a book that one of those rare instances, usually, you know, for a crime writer, I was sort of slow, but that was a book I wrote in just like six weeks. <laughs> it was one of those fever. It came like the fever and I couldn't stop. And I knew the whole story it kind of unfolded for me. And so it was um, it was one of those great uh, strokes of luck that you can toil away on all these other uh, novels, but the one you write in six weeks or whatever gets you the Edgar Award. You never know. <laughs> um, so I, I read a little bit about your background. I believe you've written a lot of nonfiction about hard-boiled crime. Yeah, yeah. My um, my dissertation became my first book, which is a not an academic book, um, which was sort of about the tough guy figure um, mm -hmm. in hard bullet fiction, film noir, and that. And I sort of wrote a lot of stuff adjacent to that, um, um, coming out of that research, and that really was I was very sort of fascinated by the sort of, I guess, you know, there's this, the tough guy isn't really so tough kind of thing, which if you watch those movies, you realize that the tough guy, the Philip Marlowe character, or the Sam Spade, or the Mickey Spillane, they're kind of a mess. <laughs> and, and I was really wanted to sort of unpack um, um, why these characters emerged in the, in the um, mid-century and, and where film noir came from. So I, it's always the era that I, you know, love the most and uh, my all my ideas of Southern California sort of uh, are all based on uh, reading those novels and, and, and imagining those motel courtyards and, mm -hmm. and those uh, nightclubs and all that glittering stuff. Now, with a different ending, I could imagine the turnout becoming a noir novel. I mean, there were you know, certain things that were going on in the book, I, you know, wasn't yeah. billed as a noir novel, so I didn't expect that. But um, talk about the turnout and maybe your evolution from those early books, those early noir novels to what you're doing currently. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I get why it seems so different. Um, the first four books were all these historical and um, with these great sort of pulp inspired covers and and then my last five or so, I lost track but are yeah we're present day and uh, I guess technically more thrillers but to me they're kind of all noir I, I I just think that to me noir is not a time or even a place it's a sensibility and and uh, and a way of sort of sort of the dark fairy tale uh, of life <laughs> um so so i know that they it seems like a sort of pivot and in some ways it, it was but um so i'm still interested in the same things i was with those earlier books which are the the great drivers of noir sort of greed and desire and longing and revenge and uh 
um, that those sort of elemental emotions that dominate noir and that still tend to tend to drive my narrative. So, so the, the turnout I definitely thought in, saw it in that world, but maybe more of a gothic noir. Um, this is a lot about family secrets um, and um, and yeah, the sort of inherent darkness um, that is family and also ballet, which is both both places that contain all these contradictions, right? They're mm. the places of lightness and dark. Um, so sort of hovering around that idea and eventually came upon the notion of this story about two sisters who, who run their mother's uh, ballet school and in some ways are sort of haunted by her memory and um, the memory of their childhood. Mm. Well, I wonder if you'd read from the book. Why don't I would love to hear you read from the turnout? Yes, absolutely. I'll read just the um, first page or so, which sort of set, sets the tone, I think, uh, um, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and the kind of world we're entering. Sure. They were dancers their whole lives, nearly. They were dancers who taught dance and taught it well as their mother had. Every girl wants to be a ballerina. That's what their brochures said, their posters, their website, the sentence strolling across the screen in stately cursive. The Durant School of Dance, established 1986 by their mother, a former soloist with the Alberta Ballet. It took up two floors of a squat, rusty brick office building downtown. It'd become theirs after their parents died on a black ice night more than a dozen years ago their car carooming across the highway median. When an enterprising local reporter learned it had been their 20th wedding anniversary, he wrote a story about them, noting that their hands were interlocked even in death. Had one of them reached out to the other in those final moments, the reporter wondered to readers, or had they been holding hands all along? All these years later, the story of their parents' end passed down like lore still seemed unbearably romantic to their students. Less so to Marie, who, after sobbing violently next to her sister through the whole funeral, insisted, I never saw them hold hands once. Mm. Uh, So that's the beginning, I guess, because you the sense of the family, the weight of the family lore. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, that was such a great beginning and um, really caught me up and it's funny because I'm always, you know, I have this focus on categories, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading and, and it felt the turnout felt like it had so many literary elements um, going for it, which I, I don't always detect in thrillers, I suppose, you know, there, there's not always this buildup and this character development that I like so much, which the turnout does. And, and as I was reading, I was wondering if, um, if you have a certain, because you, this is, I think your 11th novel, 11th book. It's right? a 11th book, 10th novel. Okay. I wondered if you um, are more relaxed in your writing and you don't have to think about categories or what's happening in the first chapter or, um, you know, making sure, making sure there's a velocity right from the beginning. Yeah, that I mean, that's certainly the part I, I struggle with the most in revision in particular is managing that balance because you do you do for because 
people who read thrillers, there's an expectation of a certain propulsiveness. But but I actually think they're generally much more patient than we give give might give them credit for because because there's sort of these connotations of airport thriller. Or, um, mm. is I, and I think it's really about you know, for me, there's never just one mystery. There's many mysteries. Um, and there's the mystery of of who who done it, but there's all these other ones. And and I think if you know, my goal is to always sort of it sort of be this sort of threads constantly unfurling, and you're you're having these sort of revelations. So it's not just the one answering the one big question, but but many this sort of in, these interconnection of, of this sort of scheme of interconnected questions. You know who who is this family? How did this happen? Why are these sisters still here? Um, you know what is the story with their mother? Why have they you know never really gone out into the world? Sort of. And that, that was sort of always a lot of, the, I mean, I, I was a big lover, even as a kid with Shirley Jackson. And I always think she's sort of the master of all of that, of, um, of setting you off on a bunch of questions um, as you begin the book. And um, you're sort of chasing after all of them at once, which buys you more time, I think, for the, for, for the person reading it, um, that there's, there's, there's a lot to be discovered. Mm. And I love how the Nutcracker mirrors, sort of mirrors their lives, um, is almost, I don't know, a metaphor for what they're going through. Um, and I wondered about you and if you had a dance background and, and um, how you know so much about dance and feet and... Um... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and so funny what you said, the Nutcracker was a kind of happy accident. I, I had picked it because it's sort of the one ballet everyone's seen. Um, you know, they're ramping up for this production and everybody knows the Nutcracker. If they see one ballet, that's it. And, but also that it's how dance schools make all their money. But it wasn't really until I started writing that I realized that it had all these other um resonances or they were being created as I wrote that it would in some way have all these metaphoric significances and I really didn't think about what it meant to me because I I did take ballet as an eight or nine year old it was terrible <laughs> but but uh, it was the romance of the nutcracker that sucked me in and still does I still go every year um but the school I went to the Casali School of Dance it was run by two sisters and I, it wasn't really till the book was in copy edit that I remembered that and thought, oh my gosh, that must have been where the sisters at the center of the turnout came from because these were rather glamorous sisters. So I, in other words, I have had no ballet experience really, mm -hmm. but I had a um, all the enchantment uh, and fascination with it in all its sort of lightness and darkness. So, so then it was just a matter of doing the research um, and really being able to get get into the things that um, kind of always looking for the details that you would you would have to really be on the inside to get uh, whenever my subject is that that's what I kind of want. I want the sort of smells and, and sounds and sensations and all the sort of nitty gritty stuff that no one likes to talk about. Mm. What sort of research did you do for the turnout? It was um, a lot of reading, a lot of memoirs and sort of histories and uh, a lot about the Nutcracker and reading the original Nutcracker, the E.T.A. Hoffman story. And then it was a, a lot of um, weirdly um, watching a lot of um, YouTube that most 
dance studios or dance companies have their rehearsals on there and you can watch you can get really close up views um and really sort of study it and also see what the corrections are when a teacher's correcting it's, it's sort of the ultimate inside view if you're if you're patient enough so i got a lot of it from just watching these rehearsals and these performances and then that was when i came upon the thousands of videos of dancers preparing their point shoes and that became a big fixation of mine that found its way into the book which um, Marie is preparing her point shoes in one of the early scenes and um, that was having having watched so many of these YouTube videos. Do you tend to do all your research before you start writing? I, I try to do the bulk of it. Inevitably, stuff comes up. But the idea is that I could write for a few pages without having to check anything or to check anything significant. And, and so I want to be able to know enough that I don't have to keep pausing and thinking, well, what would they be doing here? What would she be saying? Um, so I want to have enough for that. And then when I, I really don't, I tend to, a few times I've talked talked to people, interviewed people in advance, but mostly when I'm done, like with the turnout, I had a ballet dancer and teacher read it for a fact check um, to make sure. Um, and it was great because she, she found a few things and also she had all these great stories and I sort of wish I had spoken to her before so I could put some of them in the book. Um, um, but, but I tried to not let it, I don't want it to be a report. I don't want it to be a, a piece of journalism. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, be able to lift off um, from from reality too. So I try to keep the the writing period of it as 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 out of that as possible. Yeah. Um. What about structure? Because you have such a handle on structure, and and when I'm when I'm reading, I'm always looking. One thing I look for is the midpoint, and what happens at the midpoint, and and if what is supposed to happen is there, and it was there in in the middle of your book. And I was curious if you just know that instinctively at this point, or if you structure ahead of time so you know where you're going and you know where all your beats are going to be. How does that go for you? It's it's um, the mushy middle is always the hardest part. I, I just try to map out the three acts as I see them in my in my head. Um, Again, love, growing up loving movies, I do think more of the movie story structure is 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 kind of dominant. Um, but um, you know, inevitably things change, and and the middle is always really hard. And so it's really the revision where I find the 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 true structure, or where I nail down the structure. Um, taking things out. It's my first readers, my first, I don't have many readers, but I, I try to see where their interest is flagging, where things feel too slow. And, and, but mostly that I'm a big reviser and it, that's really crafted after the first draft is usually pretty messy. And then sometimes the middle is near the end. Mm. Do you have, um, 
don't know, a, a method of revising? I mean, do you look at the big, the sort of the, the plot points or the big elements first? And then, you know, the next draft might be, I don't know, looking for something else. And the next draft is something else. Or um, do you just kind of go through it and, and do whatever you can do? Um, it's, it's such a mysterious thing, isn't it? Because there, there are many stages at which you can't read your own book and mm -hmm. you, you, you can't. And if you try, you could ruin it. <laughs> so I always feel like it's this delicate house of cards and be so careful. So I really try to be very strategic about a, a full like going through it fully. I Sentence by sentence, I'm revising all the time. That's just one of my worst procrastination things, but also if the, I can't get the rhythm right, I can't keep writing. So I'm often you know, doing a lot of revision as I'm writing, but the, but the after it's usually based on um, um, early reader response. I, in, and then having like a gap of like a month, if I can get away with it, where I don't look at it at all. And then I look at it with the issues raised in the notes, but then also, What's amazing is you see you see the problems when you've had that distance. So I really try to build enough time for that, and then to do it again. And 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 by then you sort of have these gaps built in. Send it to your editor. You get a, you know they they take a few weeks. And um, but um, I'm really trying to respond to the to the note and then the things I'm seeing. Um, and I've gotten better at not imagining disaster, which makes me sort of, you know, you then you start messing around with it and you can really, you can really, you can overwork it. That's the thing I mostly get worried about, especially the first 50 pages can get really overworked because um, you just, you've, you've touched them so many times. So there is a little bit of a, mysterious elusive element that I'm always you know I'm always dancing around um to being too intrusive or not intrusive enough with it mm. yeah that overworking thing is um I imagine is dangerous for a lot of writers especially new writers who won't leave the first or second chapter alone you know yeah. um but how do you kind of avoid overworking then I do have to trust trust the early readers to an extent, and then um, I mean, I really do have to. Um, I I have to like. Usually, I get sick of it, um, and that's a good sign that I need to stop it. I, I really get sick of it, and it, it always reminds me of you know I was a very um, dedicated student, and I always remember this blissful moment when I realized I could study mo no more for that test tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That my brain was not going to take anymore, and then mm -hmm. I would, uh, you know, pick up a, a a book or something and do something different, and uh, or, or watch a movie. And so I I have a version of that with the novel where I just know I'm not I'm I'm just moving. Um, I always it's that expression. I'm just moving chairs around on the deck of the Titanic at this point, <laughs> you know? and I have to you know I have to get off this boat and hope it will. Um, not 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 take the fate of the uh, Titanic. So it is there's a lot of it that that's instinct. And you know, I have just overworked manuscripts that had just died before they were finished more than many times, a hundred pages in. And they just never came to life. 
And so usually if I'm overworking it too, there's, it's because it hasn't caught fire and it's probably the wrong book or the wrong time for that book. Have you ever picked any of those hundred pages back up to, uh, <laughs> yeah, one time and it became my fifth book. So the first novel I ever tried to write called the end of everything, um, it, uh, I did not know how to plot at all then and couldn't figure out anything, but the elements I ended up going back to, and I wrote it as my fifth novel. So I, I always tell other writers who despair of, you know, putting that, that book in the drawer, that manuscript, because you, even if you're not going back to the whole thing, there might be something in there that lives on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to talk about a little bit about how, the words look um, on the page of this book, because there's a lot of white space, which I find, you know, my eyes love white space when I'm reading and and the chapters tend to be more on the short side than the long side, all that, you know, pull me through anyway. Um, And I don't know if you're paying attention to that. Are you, are you caring about how the words are looking on the page? Yes, very much. I'm glad you asked that because that, that is weirdly important. No one's ever asked me about it before. And, um, and I, I, it is really important as I'm writing, um, almost like, and it, I'm not comparing it to poetry, but I think it's more how, po- you know, something really, in terms of my energy or the fire of it that's really critical and or maybe it's also too sort of a rhythmic thing mm-hmm. um and dara who's the head we're in for this book she, her voice was so clear to me and it was that kind of voice it was a lot of short sentences and stops and starts and the kind of person who ends conversations before with you before you believe you offended them and is uh um there'd be this kind of red tat tat kind of rhythmic which suited the dance to it and and once I got into that it really became always very clear to me when a chapter should end and when when a new one was it felt um instinctual in that way and part of it was even yeah just the line breaks where the line breaks were going to be um and when there was it was like like the copy editor's nightmare where like when there was this space and when there was this bigger (laughs) space and it was had really strong feelings about that. You kind of want the reader to stop longer at the bigger break. That's the whole, you're trying to control the reading experience, I suppose, um, or or be, try to create this rhythm with you and the reader um, where you're kind of dancing together. Hmm. Well, it works. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it worked very well. Um, but, you know, speaking of the characters and the voices of the characters, um, one thing I admired about about the turnout was how your main characters all were very different from each other in in voice and just you know if there if there were not um, dialogue tags I would know who was on stage and I'm curious about that about your way of creating characters and making sure that they are um, different from one another and that they sound different. Um, can you say anything about that? Because yeah. Marie Brie and Dara, I mean, they're very close sisters, and yet they're very different and sound different, and everything about them feels very different. Yeah, and that that came first. The first thing I wrote was sort of 
and the scene that didn't end up in the book about their mother cutting their hair in the kitchen and and I really was had this sense of their voices right away. Um, usually the central voices I have early on or I can't write the book, but the but the other, you know, big significant characters like here, Dara's husband, Charlie, or Derek, this contractor in their life, they're the ones, they're very big characters in the book, but it takes me longer to find them usually um, or to um, figure out how to, to bring their bring their voice to give sort of energy to their voice so they usually come later though Derek is sort of very different than most of my he was like he came fully formed to me which is very rare for one of my characters um usually I have to nudge my way into it and he had such swagger and in some ways maybe a kind of calling back to noir in some way he's sort of one of those big big talker troublemaking characters that uh that that sort of belong in the noir so so usually it's there's there's not a usual way but it's some of them it takes a while in other words and some of them I'm, I'm not getting their voice until until I'm pretty far into the book and then we'll go back and modify um and so it's it is also a kind of way of hearing them in in my head and I've done a little work in tv and and that definitely has helped me with the, you realize how important that is when you're writing dialogue for the screen is um is how those how those cadences is the different way we sound how that all matters and helps shape our perception of the character do you read aloud I do. I do. I have a good friend, um, Laura Lippman, the novelist, and she mm -hmm. reads all her manuscripts um, completely aloud when she's finished, which I would love to do, but I don't have, uh, I cannot stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so, um, but I do read large sections aloud, and I'm always hearing it in my head, and a lot of my word choices are based on the sound, um, which also makes happy editing a bit, a bit of... Uh, <laughs> A battle because the sound matters often more to me than the the meaning. Uh, but I'll I'll be a little more lax. But yeah, that that is a huge huge piece of it. Um, maybe that too comes from loving those hard boiled novels, which are very rhythmic. Um, and James Elroy, who was one of the first crime writers I read, um, is a, the a telegraphic style that's so distinctive. I guess it's a sort of a it, it, it helps has helped me shape my style is is to focus on the sound. Hmm. Well, you have a very nice voice, so I wouldn't worry about Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but also, you mentioned poetry, and I wondered what sort of influence poetry has had on your work. I always think it hasn't had much, just because I, um, you know, I was I read a lot of it in graduate school, but so little since. But I think because I read a lot of it in grad school, it really sunk into me and I am I, I really before I wrote the turnout I was reading a lot of Plath um, who's always been big for me and was also listening to her read her poetry there's lots of recordings of her and she I realized how much she had I had sort of she had influenced me in ways I hadn't even thought about because because I mean her poems not I mean obviously the Belgian is great but her poems have influenced the way I think about prose um there's so 
like what they always call in the Hollywood, it's a no, really annoying term, but voicey, they're so voicey, right? They're so right. specific, right? They could only be her. Um, and so she, she's always been, been a big one. And then it was a lot of the more um, like Frank O'Hara, you know, there's um, mm -hmm. a lot of this sort of um, came to a lot of poems through sort of the, the lore of the uh, American writer um, and uh, that sort of kaleidoscopic view of, of um, America um, and its ideas about itself. And all that was very big for me in grad school. And I think it, it, it left its mark for sure. Hmm. Now, is your graduate degree in creative writing or literature, English literature? It's in literature. Yeah, I, I just um, I thought I was going to be a professor um, um, and fully and, and completed the Ph.D. Um, but but then I ended up <laughs> the siren song of, of novel writing slowly <laughs> away. Um, but I, I my father was a professor of political theory, and I, I really thought that would be the way I could talk about books forever. <laughs> the um, uh, so yeah, that uh, was full full immersion, um, and yeah, never got an MFA. Um, only took undergraduate creative writing. Never never copy on that. I wonder what would have happened because I mean I know some MFA programs these days um, are more accepting of non literary fiction, you know, or yeah. more accepting of of mystery of crime fiction. But I wonder what would have happened with your writing if you had gone into an MFA program. I do too. I think about that a lot because it was even hard for me at that time. It would not be now, but even a little, not hard, but I did have to make a case for my dissertation being on crime fiction in a PhD mm -hmm. program. And I was, you know, writing about Raymond Chandler, you know, these sort of Tester Himes, really big American writers, but mm -hmm. it was there, the worry among some of the professors in the department was that I wouldn't be able to get a job because that was too niche. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and at that time it was a valid concern for me, but that, but that has changed as for MFA programs, you know, I taught for a year as a writer in residence at Old Miss in their master's program, and and um, and they're they have a very you know they're very welcoming there, but I no one ever turned into me anything even remotely crime fiction oriented. So um, I do think there is an expectation, even if it's not a demand or a request or an ex, you know, uh, I think there's a it's being. I think there's an idea of what, when you enter that program, you're supposed to be writing that's kind of hard to shake. And it's definitely not genre fiction. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Which is sort of a shame because, I mean, it is a sort of way you can, it is sort of genres, you know, of course, if you want to build a, a, a career and get income from, you know, the genre, is, of course, you is people buy genre books. Um, um, and, and so it is sort of a shame because it's a way to build a career um, that I think shouldn't be discouraged for, for master's students. Right. And, and I was curious too, I mean, in, in the crime genre, there's so many subgenres anymore um, and then sub subgenres. And yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, what do you think about categorization and do you think it's helpful or do you think it's, it's it's just what it is and and we'll phase out of that 
Yeah, I'm always railing against it, genre, categories, all these things, but then I always default to it. I just think there's a way we like to put things in boxes in our head. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll be the first person to say that, you know, all fiction is genre fiction. Um, um, and there's overlap in all of these, but for instance, I'm often clarifying to someone that who reads what they call procedurals, which are really mm-hmm. the stories about the crime from the point of view of the police and the investigators, and you follow it from the crime to the um, to the solution. And and I, that's those are I don't write those books. I love to read them, but but I always sort of don't want to give people the expectation that that's what they're going to get. Um, um, and so obviously there is something useful about having these terms, even if ultimately most stuff slides between and among them. And this, I was thinking about that a lot. There was a lot of talk last summer about what will crime fiction do in the age of, you know, Black Lives Matter and defund the police and, and if you know crime fiction widely, you know, it will do the same thing it keeps doing. There's going to be, you know, procedurals that sort of support the notion that criminal justice is always served. And there's noir ones where there's no possibility ever mm-hmm. of uh, justice ever being served. Um, that the, It's such a big genre with so many uh, facets to it, you know, as many facets as literary fiction has too. So I, so I guess, you know, I guess we're, we, you know, we're, we're stuck with these um, designations and, and might as well um, <laughs> get used to it, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just have to accept it. I know. I mean, it's, uh, I guess we all look for what we like to read too. And we want, we want to see if we read flap copy, we want it to reflect in some way what we're looking for. And so, yeah. you know, cut down on the search time. I don't know. But um, I was curious if um, of your own novels, other than The Turnout, if you have a favorite. Boy, I always say no, because it feels like, I don't know, it's so silly, but it does feel like they're kind of your kids and you kind of want to, um, you know, so I sort of always sort of get a little nervous when someone wants to tell me what their favorite one is, because <laughs> like, why don't you like the other one? Right. Um, um, but there are certainly ones that have more personal significance to me. So probably if I were to pick one, I would say the end of everything, because it was sort of, it was my pivot out of historical, but it was sort of the most grounded in my life. It's, it's in my head, it's set in my suburban Detroit neighborhood. And, and it's very much about what it was like in the early eighties being a kid in this sort of, um, the sort of mysteries of the suburbs and, uh, um, you know, peer, peering through neighbors' screens at night and that, that era when kids sort of would be gone all day and just come back by the time the street lamps come on. And so it has a lot of, it's infused with these sort of personal details. So I think it'll always have a special place for me because of that. And plus it was the one you put away and brought back out. That's true. That's true. I think I have the longest story with that one. And, and that's funny. It's been in development for a feature film forever. I, I'm not involved in it. And I just got an email that, that they, that they think it's going to happen. And I've been here for a long time, but they actually, they're really passionate people behind it. And that, I guess of all my stuff, that's the one that it would be the, probably the, most exciting, but also terrifying to see um, in, in filmic form. Yeah. 
Well, we're getting toward the end of our time, and I want to do what we have begun to do at the toward the end of a show, which is um, talk about spoilers. And so people who want to leave now and not, not listen to the rest of the show until after you read the book, that's fine. It'll just be a few minutes. We're not going to miss much. Um, but I do want to ask you a few things. So all you all you listeners there that need to uh, need to put it on mute, go ahead. And now we're going to talk about a couple of spoilers because man, when we get toward <laughs> the, <laughs> the last section of the book, so many secrets are being revealed here. And one is that Dara remembers Charlie with her mother. And I wondered if you knew that from the start, did you know that was going to happen? Did you know she was going to learn this about, or or not learn it, but see this um, and remember this scene. No, I didn't. Uh, that, there's a few of those spoilers that did. I mean, they came in in the process of writing, but they weren't in advance. I mean, that one really snuck up on me. Um, I didn't have a strong sense of Charlie at the, when I was first writing, and then he kind of emerged for me and. I, I just kept thinking of this sort of, he's the injured dancer, right? That sort of, the to me, this sort of most tragic outcome in, um, in, in dancers' lives is that you could have these debilitating injuries and not be able to dance. And so he was starting to think about, um, you know, his, his sort of, his life and and what it's become and and then it sort of became so clear to me it was like I felt like Dara was like I knew this but I didn't know I knew it <laughs> so it sort of shimmered before me just just as it as it did for Dara um, this thing that you you did know but but you let yourself forget so it kind of felt that way to me like I had I had known it all along and just hadn't known it hmm. the other is um, of course. Charlie, we find we find out that Charlie played a major role in Derek's death. Did yes. you know that? Did you? Yes, did you- that one I did know. Yeah, um, uh, that came very early on, and I, and I was really wanting to have what I guess again I consider like a film noir idea mm-hmm. of the right. the lovers um, plotting. Um, and then I could have an insurance investigator, which I always love in film noir, like double indemnity. Uh, um, so, so yeah, that, that was planned early on. Mm. And yet the, the police element was pretty played down in this book. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of thinking a lot about how it's sort of, I was sort of fascinated by these workplace accidents and the, the, the trickiness with the with the police and in a lot of these instances really truly with contractors and and their clients uh, on both sides very sort of volatile situations where it's hard to sort of hard that something was brewing and brewing and no one can figure out what really happens it's sort of fascinated by that but I, I tend to not have the police be in my books much anyway um there's sort of these figures out there and there tend to be but I tend to really stick very close with the the criminals and those who love them (laughs) um um, and um and how you know the 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 police is the the person they're trying to avoid constantly (laughs) well it seems to when you bring the police in unless unless you have unless you're a former police officer or detective or FBI agent or whomever, then you have to deal with what 
actually would happen. And, you know, in any given time, right? Because it changes over the years, it kind of changes what happens with DNA and with all this other stuff. Yes. Well, th- this is this is the other. Lo- this is sort of the lucky card I have in my pocket, which is my brother is a prosecutor, and so often I'm I'm asking him about this stuff about how it really is and how <laughs> how police budgets, prosecutors' office budgets, equipment that they own. A lot of my books revolve around the police are only investigating as far as they can investigate with what they can prove. And so I'm always sort of fascinated by the, and sort of horrified for all of us at the notion of um, how often police do think someone's guilty, but they, the prosecutor can't make a case or they don't, it's their instinct, but they don't have, uh, and it's sometimes wrong and they don't have the evidence to support it and how that really, it's sort of this fantasy going back to the procedurals and where they belong. But the, the, a lot of those ones that we grew up with have do present this fantasy that the evidence is always there. Um, that once we had DNA, we could always get DNA and everything and everything would sort of fall into place. But, but mostly that that doesn't happen. And this is a, you know, a community and a family that protects its own. Um, so, so that sort of is one of the, one of my fascinations with the justice system is, is how often um, justice is is elusive. Hmm. Yeah, even though I, I think of you know getting toward the end of the book, Dara is worried about cameras and phones and and what might have been recorded digitally. Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's and that's sort of I mean that's all of us now certainly and. I certainly, whenever I'm researching a book, the more I find out about our digital footprint and um, if the if they can actually, you know, if the individual police department, based on the laws of that state, can actually get your phone record, you know, like all these things, but then, you know, everything is sort of laid bare. Um, and that's sort of another element, I suppose, of noir that, that remain in my books, which is that kind of paranoia, justified paranoia, um, to some extent, but that that paranoia, that isolating paranoia of, of the noir uh, protagonist. Yeah, yes, yes. And in noir, I think also the police, you hardly ever see police. I mean, you might see a detective, there might be, you know, someone wandering around, but, but it's really more about just regular people dealing with... Yeah whatever they're dealing with, whatever crime, whatever revenge, whatever. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Well, gosh, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. And I wonder if you have any, any tips or words of wisdom or last words for the writers who are listening. Yeah, I will say the thing I, I often say, and, and it, some writer said to me once, and I stick with it, is that, like, how, um, write badly, which is I always give. <laughs> I think so much of the hard part is how hard we are on ourselves when 
you know, when we're trying to sit down and write and how all the inner voices in our head. And I always try to remind myself of everything that to just write badly for the next hour or two and just write badly for three pages and um, sort of giving yourself permission to do that um, because everything can be fixed, thrown out, shaded, given nuance. It only needs to be one good sentence um, or even even a phrase to, to make it worth it. Um, so I always try to remind people to, to, to give yourself permission to write badly. <laughs> and sometimes that permission gives you such a freedom that often there's some good stuff that comes out. I think so. I think so. Those, those inner voices and those sort of, you know, imaginary readers can really feel, um, oppressive and we have different expectations and what this needs to be and what this should be. And then, and you're not letting that, all those unconscious voices come instead that, um, that can sort of tell you all kinds of wonderful secrets and put you in, in new places. Um, those are, those are the voices to listen to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, being here with us today, Megan. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. That was Megan Abbott, author of The Turnout. This show, along with hundreds of others, will be podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from our listeners, so visit my website, palmspringsnoir.com, and drop us a line. And thank you for listening.
Oh, dear. 